Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. The next reading is from the letter of James, chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls but be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unsustained by the world. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, for this day we give you thanks, and for your word uh, we give you thanks. We thank you that you are the God who desires to be known by us, so we pray that today you would help us to listen well, to hear you well, and to uh, not simply be hearers, but doers of your word. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, for, as, as you've heard, for the next uh, few weeks, we're going to be uh, spending time in the letter of James. And, um, you know, James is one of those letters in the New Testament that tends to get kind of overlooked. It doesn't always get the, the attention that it deserves. And that, that might maybe because it's at the very back of the Bible, you know. And sometimes I think that we sometimes think, at least 
subconsciously that, you know, the important stuff comes first. So we prioritize the Gospels, and then Paul's letters come, and then everything after that kind of gets less and less play. I mean, when was the last time you read the letter of Jude, right? (laughs) And for what it's worth, I think we do this with the Old Testament too. Lots of us know the stories in Genesis, but who really knows where Habakkuk is? I don't know. Um, So that's one problem, but also over the history of the church, some have thought that the, the things that James says are problematic, right? So the great reformer, Martin Luther, once famously called this uh, letter an epistle of straw, which I guess is a sort of 16th century burn, uh, because he felt like James is too concerned with works, that with what we do rather than with grace, what God has done. Uh, you know, there are parts of this letter that make it sound like what we do is what's important, as though we're not caught up in the dragnet of God's grace in Christ, but we have to earn our way into God's good books by doing the right things. Now, it's worth acknowledging that, that Luther was worried about something pretty important. You know, it's a reality we need to be reminded of again and again, that we are more than what we do. You know, lots of us, lots of our neighbors, just about everyone we see in the media live as though our accomplishments are what make us good and worthy and lovable. You know, we idolize our work and our actions, our own best efforts. We're told that we're only as good as what we produce. And and it's not that what we do is irrelevant. We're, We're made to participate in God's world. We have this one wild and precious life, as the poet Mary Oliver so beautifully puts it. And we get to bring our whole selves to it. This one wild and precious life. But if what we do is what makes us good or worthy or lovable, then we're going to end up in trouble at some point. Now, even if we do as well as we can, we're eventually going to fall short. We're going to run out of steam. We're going to fail. We're going to find ourselves unable to do the things we're told we need to do. and, And then we'll succumb to the lie that at that point or in those moments... Our value is either jeopardized or destroyed. If what we do matters most, there will come a point, maybe many points, maybe many points in any given day, when it seems like we don't matter. But the heart of the gospel is that we matter extravagantly. The heart of the good news of Jesus is that we are so wildly loved that God will cross heaven and earth to prove it. The heart of the gospel is that we are worthy and lovable, not when we've accomplished great things or met a certain standard, but we are worthy and lovable long before we manage to do anything. When we fall short, when we're helpless and hopeless, even when we are as good as dead, even then God loves us and cherishes us and will give anything to have us. And so we're right to be a little skeptical if James is telling us that what we do is what matters most. But I think that's not at all what he's saying or what he's calling us to. I think that what James reminds us of again and again is is what one early church father uh, said, that the glory of God is a human fully alive. The glory of God is a human fully alive. James reminds us over and over again that we get to respond to the good news of God in Christ with everything we've got. We're caught up in nothing less than the the promise that we in this world are loved beyond our wildest dreams and we're made to live in the world as God made it to be and as God is making it again. Now James is determined that the good news of Jesus is not for somewhere someday. It's not something we keep in a drawer for when things are going poorly. 
It's not so holy that it never touches the ground. The gospel is an event that changes the world. It's the foundation of our lives. Now, just like in the letter to the Ephesians last week, James wants us paying attention to the fact that we live in a world in which Jesus is raised from the dead, which means both that the will and way of Jesus is the will and way of God. How Jesus is is how God is for us, and that we live in a world in which God is up to things more marvelous than we could ever dare hope. And we get to live wholeheartedly in response to the fact that not even death is going to stop God's purposes. Now, James wants the church to know that we are perfectly free to live for nothing less than what God is up to in the world. We get to participate with the one who is making all things new, bringing good news to the poor, setting captives free, enlightening sin-dim eyes, relieving the oppressed by using whatever we've got to reflect the love and grace and mercy of God in the world wherever and whenever we find ourselves. Or, as James puts it a little more succinctly, we get to be doers of the word and not just hearers of it. We get to be doers of the word and not just hearers of it. We get to be what he calls a kind of first fruits of what God's up to. We get to be like those February crocuses that Vancouverites love to send pictures of to their friends and neighbors uh, across the country who are still buried in snow. Right? We get to be um, like those first buds of spring that tell uh, the world that we're, we're coming into a new season. We get to be like the first fruits that hold the promise that a good harvest is on the way. We get to be strange enough now that when God gets the world God wants, we'll fit right in. We get to be doers of the word, not just hearers of it. You know, God's word, God's promises have this habit of becoming embodied. You know, God refuses to be tamed by abstraction. St. John says at the very beginning of his gospel that the word that was with God and was God becomes flesh and moves into the neighborhood, lives among us. And so here's this wild thing that I think James and his colleagues seem to believe, uh, that in the light of Jesus and with the help of the Holy Spirit, the good news of God has a shape, and it's you. The good news of God has a shape and it's you. You are what the gospel looks like because you are wildly loved and you are made to be a sign of God's purposes. In the company of Jesus, the gospel is you-shaped. It's, it's me-shaped. It's us in these bodies, in these wild and precious lives. And that's why it matters what we do. Not because we're trying to uh, work our way into God's good books, but because we, our lives here and now, with whatever we've got, are made by grace to be signs of what God is up to in the world. That's why James doesn't want us settling for a faith that can be kept to ourselves or, or stored on a shelf or thought about for an hour a week and under the appropriate circumstances. And so he says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. And for if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror and on going away forget what they were like. Now for a long time I thought this was kind of a weird image that James gives us. But now I, more and more I think it's excellent. Now when we're confronted by God's word, we hear who we really are. It's like looking in a, a mirror to see exactly what we look like, only it's a little different than we're used to because in the mirror of God's word, we're not quite as concerned with the things uh, the world tells us we should be concerned about when we see our reflection. 
Right? We're not worried about how like taut and tight and unblemished things are. Uh, instead, what we learn to do is, is see in ourselves the very fact that God is generous extravagantly. It, that our lives are enough to bear that truth. You know, that we exist is a reminder that we are created in and for boundless and unconditional love because we don't need to be, but we are because God wants it that way. And isn't that something to marvel at? Now, the, the, the breath in our lungs, God's word says, the, that sustaining spirit is God's own breath, God's own life-giving spirit. God is closer to us than we are to ourselves, St. Augustine said. That's a truth that should take our breath away. In the mirror of God's word, we see clearly that we're not alone, but we live in God's world, right? There's more going on than we can possibly know. There are galaxies beyond the ends of our noses, which is why James can say earlier in the letter that even when things go entirely sideways, and they do, we know they do, we know that they will, all is never lost. And I think the only way to say that without sounding ridiculous or willfully naive is from a place of trust that God is faithful without variation. And God is not faithful in abstract, but God is faithful in this world. God can be trusted with these lives, whatever the circumstances. You know, in the mirror of God's word, we, we see that this word is good news for the poor and the brokenhearted and the destitute. We see that God will not cut and run when things get bad and worse, but this God will join us in the ash heap, in the rubble of best laid plans, in the face of impenetrable hopelessness, and lift us up and make us something new and bring us to a life and a hope beyond hope. Not, ev not even death will get the last word on us. Which means that, that we don't shy away from places of hopelessness and defeat, right? We get down in the ash heap with others. We help to clear away the rubble. We show up with the hope that whatever we've got and whatever anyone else has, even if that amounts to a big zilch, is, is more than God needs to do marvelous things. God has always done marvelous things with far less than what we've got. This is the God who turns chaos into creation, who, who carves paths in the wilderness and makes deserts bloom who brings life out of death, we get to let our lives be evidence of that fact, both for ourselves and for others. Now, in the mirror of God's word, we, we see that we have received God's grace, that while we were still enemies, St. Paul says, God gave everything for us, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, as we just heard, and refuses to deal with us out of anything but that love. As we reflect on that word, we too learn, as, as James says, to be, to be quick to listen, slow to anger, and, or slow to speak and slow to anger. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. As we reflect that word, we recognize that we're meant to be agents of God's redeeming righteousness, a, a deep concern for others, a commitment to risky love, to, to justice and mercy that triumphs over judgment. We're, we're to take others as seriously as we know God has taken us. These are the sorts of things that, that God's word in, in Scripture and most explicitly in Jesus tells us about ourselves and this world. These are the things that are truest about us. 
that we are the object of God's generosity and love and mercy and grace and righteousness and redemption, that we are delightful to God before we can do anything and when we can do nothing. We are enough to be the first fruits of a new creation, a new hope for the world. We are called to let God's future invade our present. So sure, James is concerned with what we do and with how we live, and sometimes he's pretty sharp about it. And that's because we have this high calling. Each of us does. We are each free to be bound by what James calls this law of liberty, right? The freedom to live in nothing less than the life-abundant way of Jesus. We're not to tame the gospel into a set of pleasant ideals, There's something to be left to the particularly enlightened or clever. The, the gospel is not just for theologians and philosophers. It's not just for the especially holy times or days or seasons. It's an everyday, on-the-ground reality. You know, right from the beginning of the Bible, uh, we learn that ours is a dirt-under-the-fingernails kind of God. You know, the gospel reminds us that ours is a dust-of-the-road kind of God, a workshop, classroom, office, playground, dinner table, dishwashing kind of God. Everything we do and say gets bound up in all that God is doing. Nothing is off-limits. So I want to invite you to think about your wild and precious life. You know, where are you letting uh, the world as it is define your value or dictate your actions? You know, where are you being stained by the world, as James so evocatively puts it, as it is, instead of being shaped for the world as it will be? You know, are there places in your life, relationships, activities, decisions, where the gospel doesn't seem to apply? for one reason or another, where God is pushed to the side or not allowed in at all? Is there some hurt or anger that you're clinging to? Is there there's somewhere where you need to slow down your judgment so that you can listen, so that you can really see the one standing in front of you, just another sinner that God loves? It would be really helpful if God would stop doing that, but God seems to keep on loving sinners just like us. How will we be being called to, to let down our guard for the sake of the vulnerable? I mean, that's what James means by orphans and widows, right? In his context, those are the ones without power, without protection, at the mercy of dehumanizing systems and structures. So who in our world are those people? In this time, in this place, who is Jesus inviting us to come alongside? I, th I think the big question that James asks us is, is, where are you submitting to some deception? Where are you forgetting who you really are in the light of Christ? And if you don't know, ask God to mercifully show you, <laughs> to give you eyes to see. And then when you do see, I invite you to offer that up to Jesus. You don't need fancy words, just a willingness to hand it over, which I understand is, is totally easier to say than to do. I mean, we like our deceptions. I love my deceptions. That's why it's so hard to give them up. And James isn't suggesting that the way of Jesus is easy, but he's determined that it's good. Right? He knows the promise that when, when Jesus calls us to give up our lives for the sake of God's kingdom, for the way of love and justice and righteousness and grace and generosity and joy, come what may, that it's an invitation to life beyond measure, to hope beyond hope 
It's an invitation to, to root and ground ourselves in nothing less than the extravagant love of God for us and for this world, now and forever. So God, give us grace and guts. Amen. Thank you.